In the American Civil War, the South fought for white Christian privilege. They lost, didn't they? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. We cannot fix a problem until we really know what it is. If we can vaguely sense and feel the effects of an obstacle but really can't put a figure on what it is, we're really unable to find a solution in that case. Only when we are finally able to clearly see and identify an obstacle can we hope to overcome it. But what about something so powerful, so pervasive, and one that has thrived for centuries, one that is so built in that it has faded into the background and thus become invisible? Though many of us Americans think of our country as exceptional in that we have freedom of religion and equality of all, aside from this wonderful aspiration, we all have a sense that there's a problem lurking everywhere getting in the way of this becoming reality. People on both sides of the political and cultural aisle decry the increasingly heated divisiveness that pervades America in the 2020s, but any hope of calming the divide remains elusive. Our guest today explains that the foundational roots of the angst we feel we have have been with us festering throughout our history until we see America's very identity is tied to this white Christian privilege, can we begin to do something about it? And since it's been there for so long and is so deeply ensconced and has worked for so many for so long, a lot of Americans are determinately resistant to even recognizing it. This demographic sector is fine with things as they are. Facing history, facing the ugly truth has become their sworn enemy. They refuse to see it. But it's important, therefore, to look at and understand the roots of the very visible and ugly rise of religious nationalism which we see today. Our guest today is Kyati Y. Joshi, whose new book is White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. Kyati Joshi, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Happy to be here, Bert. Thanks for having me. Kyati Joshi is professor of education at Farley Dickinson University. Her other publications include Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, a source book, and Asian Americans in Dixie, Race and Migration in the South. And she knows from personal experience about Asian Americans in the old Confederacy, and we will talk about that. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Among the topics the right strenuously opposes is teaching in public schools, teaching history in America's public schools. One parent recently wrote that she doesn't want the teaching of anything that gets in the way of the beliefs she's trying to impart to her children. The preference of myth is easy to understand. It's simple and it's easy and it reinforces beliefs. At the earliest stages of the creation of America were the Puritans. The myth is that 
They fled sectarian religious persecution arriving on American shores with the intent to establish a haven for religious freedom for all. What was the reality? Well, the reality, so that's part of the story, right? And, and Bert, I'm so glad that you brought up the issue of history, because with history, what we are trying to do, because we have not done this, is teach truth. And that's what we're setting out to do. Uh, you know, I went to uh, school in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, we got a glossy version of U.S. history. Yes. We did not get the truth. And that's why we're in the pickle that we're in as a nation today, right? So the issue of the Puritans seeking religious freedom, which we learn about in first grade, mm-hmm. um, is partially true. They were seeking religious freedom. But you know what? They were just in it for themselves. They weren't seeking it for all, which is kind of how it's taught to all of us in school. Right. And so that's the bit about teaching truth. They were escaping persecution. They came here. They wanted religious freedom, but they did not um, value, respect or have any desire to do so in terms of the rituals they were exposed to that the indigenous people were engaged in. Um, That's why they thought of themselves as civilized and native as uncivilized. Of course. And that goes on to this day. We'll talk about that quite a bit, the belief in the superiority, the natural superiority of white Christian civilization. The, The notion of a firm base of religious freedom took perhaps its first hit with the expulsion of Roger Williams. Tell us about that, please, and how it reflects a longer-term religious freedom. Well, it it was very clear from the get-go. Um, so we don't have to go even just only rely on what happened with Native Americans. We can see what happened with many others who weren't following um, specifically the Puritan faith. Right. And what happened there. And that's one of the reasons why, um, while I talk about uh, white Christian privilege, to be historically uh, and legally accurate, sometimes we have to actually mention that it's, you know, Protestant, white Christian Protestant privilege, because there was the persecution of other Christian denominations. And we have a long and strong history of anti-Catholicism in our country. Absolutely. Yeah. One particular sect ruling over us all. I got a problem with that. What can I say? I believed what I was taught in school. Exactly. I'm so naive. I I find it fascinating how the far right has really co-opted the term religious freedom. They they talk about that with Mm -hmm. a lot of different issues, like with Hobby Lobby and things like that. What do you think the average American thinks religious freedom means? Well, you know, most people think um, there's two issues here. Most people think, hey, we have freedom of religion and the First Amendment. And hey, it's in, it's in, you know, the First Amendment. and Therefore, it must be so. And so that gets in the way. And the second thing that really gets in the way of people seeing that there are issues around religious freedom and that not all religions can practice, not all people of all faiths can practice their religions entirely freely, is that the presence of religious diversity, people equate that with equality. 
in terms of practicing one's faith. And we have to understand that the presence of diversity doesn't mean there's equity and justice, right? And just because we say there's freedom of religion in the First Amendment, it's not the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having the situation of synagogues and Hindu temples and mosques, you know, being vandalized or black churches being set ablaze, People yeah. can't practice freely all the time. No, that's true. If it's, you know, maybe on paper, but, you know, if people don't act on it, it, it doesn't really mean that much. And the plur- pluralism is, is one word related to this discussion. You say pluralism is a good start. What does pluralism mean and how is it a good start? So pluralism is getting at the notion that we really want to be welcoming of other faiths and that, you know, we don't have any state religion and everyone who in with beliefs or who have none at all um, should be respected and we should be able to live our lives. And that's a, that's a lofty goal. As you say, it's aspirational and you mentioned in your introductory remarks, but the pluralistic approach Um, You know, let's say it's also like, let's learn about Judaism. Let's learn about Hinduism. Let's learn about Islam. Okay, that's great. But here's the deal. The social justice approach understands Mm -hmm. that we need to do this and the fact that all these groups are not on equal footing. All these religious groups are not seen and don't have the same rights. That is true. And it makes me think of my next uh, question is the about the word tolerance. So mm. One sometimes hears a call for more religious and cultural tolerance. It, it, may, it probably is well-meaning, but my reaction is to bristle. In the context of your book, where does the desire for tolerance fit in? Well, the desire for tolerance fits in where it's, uh, you know, luckily, I think a lot of folks are seeing that you know, there's reasons to bristle when putting it that way. And I think sometimes people are well-intentioned who use that. But, you know, when someone uses language like that in front of me, or if I hear it, I immediately think this person really hasn't thought about the various injustices and discrimination that religious minorities actually do experience in the United States. And that they may not have people in their social networks who are of different religions uh, and have, you know, kind of engaged, if you will, because then you would realize that it has to go way beyond tolerance and that that's not, you know, a strong enough word for what we're trying to achieve. To me, you know, if you tolerate other people, tolerate Mm -hmm. other positions, that's still kind of you know, superior attitude. Well, I tolerate yeah. your stuff, but it's yeah. and certainly not, as you say, on an equal footing. Tolerance, Eek, it, it does bother me. Now, it used to be just the far right, but now the Republican Party is the far right, and they chafe at the idea of separation of church and state. As a traditional civil, liber- civil libertarian, the wall of separation between the two is a concept I treasure. Others say, well, there never has been a wall, and there never should be a wall. That frightens me. It really does. You say that the separation is a myth, and the, quote, Protestant perspectives in particular have become truths at the bedrock of America. 
There's a yeah. lot in there. Say more about that, please. Sure. So first of all, uh, you know, there really isn't a wall, <laughs> right? Because the a lot of people erroneously think this phrase separation of church and state is in one of our founding documents, which it is not, which it is not. Thomas Jefferson used that phrase in a letter he wrote to the Danbury Baptist congregation hmm. because they expressed concern about the fact that there was that Christianity was not going to be the official state religion of this country. Um, people forgot about that phrase, Bert. It re-emerged during the 1940s and 50s um, in a Supreme mm. Court case uh, when there was a, a lot of um, consternation about the fact that we have prayer and Bible readings in school. And um, and it kind of re-emerged in one of the you know uh, Supreme Court decisions. Oh, yeah. So it's not in any founding documents. Right. That's number one. Right. Number two, the the Protestant ethos is is constantly been there. All right. So let's let's bring it more to present day. For example, there's a few, you know, most um court cases around this jurisprudence when it comes to religious freedom, we think about it um, and it's talked about in two specific ways. Is this a free exercise case or is this an establishment case? Referring to the mm -hmm. two religion clauses of the First Amendment. And when we think about some of the free exercise cases, all right, um, we can see the Protestant ethos there. So back in the 80s, there was one case, um, Goldman um, versus the military. I'm forgetting the exact name. People could look it up. But Dr. Goldman um, was actually a psychiatrist who was serving in the military, and he wanted to wear um, his kippah and, um, uh -huh. and basically... Yeah, as a psychiatrist, okay, um, and the court ruled no, all right? Now, hold on to this for a second. And then we also have had various cases with Native American communities over land, all right? And uh, there was one case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, the Ling case, where um, the a few Native tribes came together and said, we want to, you to cease all logging operations in this, in this area of Northwest California because this land is sacred to us and, and you should not be building a road across it. And the Supreme Court said, no, it is in the general best interest of you know, people that we have a land, uh, a, a road there. Now, I want to, what I want to bring up with these two cases is, you know, wearing the kippah, the head covering, mm -hmm. that's sacred. Mm -hmm. That's sacred in Judaism for some people who are mm -hmm. Jewish who identify that way. Right. And land is sacred for a variety of Native American tribes and actually for Hindus and Buddhists and others as well. But guess what? These two things are not sacred for Christians. And so, therefore, it's just not seen as important. But you rest assured that if, 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 you know, land was sacred for Christians, and when it is, like cemeteries— we're not we're not we're not um, stripping down ceremony uh, uh, cemeteries right. to build a road, Bert. True, that's interesting. This that that uh, foundation of of the values there, uh, that's not equal. That's clearly not equal, and it's it's not uh, respecting. I guess that would be the uh, exercise of, uh, of freedom of religion. Yeah, interesting stuff. That's right. That's right. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is author Kyati Joshi, who's got a new book titled White Christian Privilege, The Illusion 
of Religious Equality in America. And as I was thinking about this, I, I remembered a painting called American Progress, done in 1872 by John Guest, and that is of a white woman whose name is Columbia, sort yep. of angelic in the sky, leading the white Christian settlers westward. The angelic Columbia moves from the light-skied east to the dark and treacherous west. Uh, mm. This picture is so ingrained in the United States that the white Protestant supremacy continues to be invisible and thus normalized. What does that mean in terms of how white Christian privilege works in our government, our legal system, and everyday life? Can you cite some further examples we may have just accepted? So that image that you just described, right, is symbolizing manifest destiny, right? This idea that we learn about in late elementary school, middle school, and the idea that um, this land was for the taking, you know, that the Puritans came, they were ordained by God to take this land from sea to shining sea, and that it is they who will bring light to darkness, Mm -hmm. right? Well, guess what? That was the living out, if you will, of the doctrine of discovery, which was a series of papal dictates in the 1500 that said to for uh, to the explorers, as we learned about, which we call the colonizers today, you know, settlers, if you yeah. go to the new word settlers, if you go to the new world, and if you come upon land that is not taken by another European monarch, it's yours for the taking. That was the doctrine of discovery, and Manifest Destiny executed that doctrine. That's what they did. My goodness, that applies in so many places. I think about uh, Africa in the early yes. 20th century, the scramble oh, for yes. Africa, when the That's right. white Europeans didn't even think about it. It was theirs for the taking because they had a superior civilization, and, and these lucky Africans were, you know, it was their good fortune to have... The white Christian settlers come in. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you brought up the case of colonization into the continent of Africa, because in my book, I do talk about how we also have to look at colonization into the Middle East and South Asia to really understand how religious difference morphs into racial difference and what's going on there. Yeah, it's it's so pervasive. And I mean, Quite frankly, the whole idea of uh, of philanthropy, you know, people say that's sort of colonization, too, you know, that Mm -hmm. we have the values and the top can, you know, give money, put their name on it and, you know, spread what they just decide is is the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people think. And I agree, we are a nation of immigrants. We are, in fact, a nation of immigrants. Now, never mind the people who were here for a few thousand years beforehand, but Trump was openly racist in his obsession with building that wall. Not the wall of separation between church and state, but the wall against people of darker color. The immigration has always cut both ways. It's part of our proud heritage to welcome refugees from oppressive places. But there's also a long tradition of wanting to close the drawbridge behind us. No more wretched refuse, as was said. The many congressional attempts at banning immigration from certain areas, does that not reiterate that darker-skinned Hindus, for example, can never be true Americans? And I think about 
as people who listen regularly know, I'm, I'm obsessed by the First World War. A lot of people were hurt by Woodrow Wilson's insistence back then on 100% Americanism. I wonder if such behavior then and now demonstrates the embrace of whiteness and Christianity in maintaining political, economic, and social power that that embrace is now uh, is complete. Oh, completely. I mean, um, if I have the time, you let me know. I could sure, tell, sure, sure. talk to the readers about, uh, um, listeners, sorry, sorry. Um, about two specific uh, uh, immigration uh, law um two immigration laws that were passed by Congress, one in 1917 and one yes. in 1924 that actually get at exactly what you're talking about. So the Immigration Act of 19 uh, was called that. Um, it created a barred zone from uh, present-day uh, Afghanistan uh, into Pakistan, into South Asia and into Southeast Asia. So India, Burma, Bhutan, going over to Singapore, Malaysia, you know, uh, Indonesia and everything. This part of the planet after 1917 was no longer allowed to send immigrants to the United States. Right. Now, to put this in context, you know, we'd already closed off immigration from China with the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Okay. Now, in 1924, uh, Congress passed what's called the Johnson-Reed or the National Origins Act, which limited, severely limited, immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, all right? The countries of Poland and uh, present-day Czech Republic and the present-day Baltic states and Italy and parts of Greece, and, you know, Greece, I mean, and part of Russia and all. All right. my, my people. Now, <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, your people. So 1917 <laughs> is my people and 1924 is your people. Okay, we can think about that that way. Now, here's the other thing to consider. In 1917, this was closing off immigration to people who identify as Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, Jain, Zoroastrians, and others. In 1924, we're severely curtailing immigration from the countries where their majority religious populations are Catholic, Jewish, and Orthodox Christian. All right. Mm -hmm. So it's a mathematical equation. If you put Immigration Act of 1917 plus Immigration Act of 1924, Congress is socially engineering through immigration policy a white Protestant nation. Absolutely. That's what people, a lot of people seem to think we are. I did not grow up with that belief, but uh, it's it's not gotten better, not gotten easier. In many ways, yeah. it's gotten worse. Um, yeah. And I want to ask you about your experience. None of us choose our parents. We don't choose the race or culture into which we are born. An old friend of mine, it reminded me, had who had inherited wealth said, he won the daddy lottery. You mm. did not. Most people don't. Your knowledge is quite empirical growing up Hindu in the 1980s in Bible Belt America, the old confederacy. You say some of what you experienced was not so much discrimination, but it was about the advantages other people had that you did not Tell us about yeah. that, please. Yeah, tell us. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, you know, unfortunately did experience a fair amount of discrimination I'm too, sure. but yeah. that's 
what I'm trying to teach in this book, and that's what I teach about in general, is that the discrimination one encounters, um, whether it's on race or religion or, you know, because of your sexual orientation or gender, that's one side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is the advantages the dominant group members have. And so it was sometimes that I just didn't fit in because, the you know, I kind of burnt, didn't have the secret passwords, you know, <laughs> to understand what was kind of going on, you know, for example. Um, so, you know, I, as in Atlanta in the 80s, you know, gosh, if you weren't black, you're white. And if you're not white, you're black. And and I was neither. Oh I was a little brown Hindu girl. Uh-huh. And so people really didn't know what to do with me, you know. And the thing is, is I still remember being in high school English class and we were learning about similes and metaphors and, you know, things like that. And I did not do well in English class. And I didn't do very well during middle school because of the harassment and bullying I faced. My grades really suffered because of it. And my English teacher was saying, well, okay, with similes, metaphors, blah, 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 you know, like in the story of the Good Samaritan. And I didn't know what that story was, you know? So, uh, you know, at the time I was just like, okay, well, I don't understand. But later I was like, oh, well, it was an assumption that I was supposed to know what that was. And that's the way that Christianity is just kind of ubiquitous in our lives. It's just mm-hmm. present. Mm-hmm. It's when someone says to me to this day, oh, Kathy, oh, well, what's your Bible? Well, no, I don't, I don't have a Bible. Do you mean sacred scripture? And first of all, we have religions that have many sacred scriptures, Indeed. right? So it's the way that Christianity is just used as the normal way of doing things. And what's more pernicious is the American way of doing things. The normal way of doing things. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's tough not to be normal, but wow, why be normal? I don't know who said that, but it's true, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it it's so pervasive and invisible. The notion of white Christian privilege of systemic racism is often denied. I have heard liberals say, well, we we have civil rights in law, slavery was ended, at least by law, we had a black man as president. There's, it's, there is no systemic racism. What's your response to that? So, yeah, so when we're talking about systemic racism or systemic religious oppression, right, we have to look at history. And the examples I just gave you of the immigration laws, like those are two examples of history that are part of systemic racism. It, it is this idea of where whiteness, and in my case, because I'm also bringing in religion, where whiteness and where Christianity are embedded into the legal and social infrastructure of our country. Right. And that is what produces privilege. For example, if you have, if we're talking white privilege, white privilege today, the advantages that someone who is white today has is a product of the past. It's not anything you did today. Right. So it's not to take away from hard work or, the you know, um, and the obstacle one has encountered. What we're saying, though, when it comes to race is that there are some obstacles that haven't been in your way or in the way of your family getting somewhere because of the way this country has been created. Yeah, interesting. Oh, it's it's so interesting. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about what I think certainly most listeners, and 
I hope most Americans believe that they were supposed to have real equality and, and that, you know, we are not a religious state. As some people think we are, they want to make it that way. They want to turn America from a Republican form of government to a religious nationalism. That is, to me, very un-American. We've seen it in other countries. Our guest today is Kiati Joshi, whose new book is White Christian Privilege, the Illusion of Religious Equality in America, and she is professor of education at Farley Dickinson University and has written a number of books as well. Now, many people believe that, well, if we all, if, you know, if we just treat people with respect and kindness, bias would stop being a problem. But it's not that simple, you say. Please explain that. Yeah, we tend to think of things around discrimination and bias happening, Bert, at that individual level, right? Which is why people think, I'm just going to be nice to everybody. But it goes way beyond you, right? There are the institutions in our society you know, that where we have publici- where we have policies and practices that are discriminatory. We have the societal level um, of our lives where this is kind of the societal cultural level. It's that the part of our lives where, you know, we have the unstated rules and norms of how things function. You know, so it's there's bias in all of these levels, not just the individual. And it's hard to see the institutional bias, Mm -hmm. for example, the systemic racism or systemic religious oppression, unless we're taught about it, it is invisible. And that's, that's why we're having the problems that we're having as a country today, because we've not been taught to recognize, or we didn't learn about, you know, the the various parts of U.S. history that relate to systemic systemic racism or religious oppression. Yeah, it's so much easier not to see it. I mean, who wants to look at the ugly stuff? But unless we do, well, which is why so many people on the far right are against teaching history, because they don't want to look at that. They don't want to let history uh, get in the way of their beliefs. You know, I, I kind of have a problem with that. You know, we're not yeah. a, a, a church-run state. And I grew up in the 1950s. I'm a little older, and we had a middle class back then. Mm. Life was good for the white middle class in the 1950s. We actually had a middle class back then. Tell us, please, about some of the things that happened then that might be now deeply baked into our American pie, changes which cemented white Christian privilege. Well, I think there's um, a few things to consider. And first, you know, to understand the culture of the 1950s in this country, the 40s and 50s, you, you know, me laying out those two immigration laws helps us understand how we got a leave it to beaver (laughs) kind of society and that we started believing that that was what America is with mass media coming of age, you know. But there's two specific cases, um, Supreme Court cases at the time that really really affect the uh, issue of religion in our country. Um, And they were both around um, uh, Bible readings and prayer in public schools. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court ruled um, in both cases that um, we should be taking, you know, prayer should not be happening in school and Bible readings shouldn't be happening in school. And conservative Christian America since then ran with this idea that government was taking religion out of schools. No, 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 no. They were taking 
prayer and Bible reading out of schools. Um, indeed, Justice Tom Clark in the Abington v. Shemp decision in 1963 said that one's education is not complete without the study of religion. Mm. But the problem is, mm-hmm. is that everyone has come to believe because of the false notion that there has to be a, separ- a separation of church and state, you know, being in our founding documents, big error, mm-hmm. combined with um, this whole idea like, no, government took religion out of schools. You know, we get schools in the 60s and 70s and 80s and so on that aren't teaching about religion um, because they think they can't. And in, and uh, combined with the fact that we have an increasingly diverse student body coming into our schools and coming of age because we had the Immigration Act of 1965 that brought in all this religious diversity. And so we're going to, you know, we've got to teach about religion in schools and get religious literacy going because we're in, again, this kind of pickle that we're in because we don't know about each other. We have this false sense that, um, you know, I I walk into a school sometimes to help work with teachers and administrators and a principal will say to me, Dr. Joshi, yeah, uh, no, you know, we don't we don't teach about religion. We're a secular school, you know, mm. that's what we do. And I said, "Listen, you're in the United States of America. Let me tell you, starting point is a white Christian supremacist society. Starting point is not neutral and zero. How is your calendar scheduled? When are the holidays given? You know, what is just understood to be as normal?" Right. And I I use the phrase white Christian supremacy not to get everybody in a tizzy, not to say that I'm saying you are, you know, part of the white nationalist group. I'm saying that that's a matter of fact. You can look at it in terms of Supreme Court decisions, lower court decisions. You can look at it across the board. And but people think not addressing religion is the starting point. That's neutral. That's not neutral. Because Christianity is omnipresent. Absolutely. And I, I got to tell you, it reminded me, when I was in high school, there was a course on world religions. And it's like... That's good. Yeah, but why did I have to wait till I was a junior in high school? You know, I was fascinated by it. I thought, hey, this is cool to learn. All these other people, I of course, respect it equally. Uh, but... It was, I don't know how many schools do that. I I happen to go to a good school system. Go ahead. That was great. We're not getting that. You know, as far as I know, there is only one school district in the nation that has made world religions a requirement, and that is Modesto, California. You can't hear my jaw dropping there, but wow. Yeah. That's that's amazing to me. I could be wrong. I, you know, well, so if, maybe and if a any of your others. listeners have <laughs> other information, please email me. But, but um, yeah, and this is the problem. So I'm so happy to know that you got it as a oh, junior, yeah. but most people aren't getting it today. They may if they go to college and they take, right. you know, classes and it helps fulfill a requirement that somebody might take it. I just... I happen to go to a really good school system, Newton, Massachusetts. What can oh, I tell yeah. you? What can I that tell is. you? It was great. It was great. And again, I grew up in the era of Leave it to Beaver and all that stuff and uh, uh, the Donna Reed show. Idealized suburban lives were pervasive in the sitcoms yeah. of my childhood. They were white men benevolently ruling a nuclear family. 
you know, and though we're allegedly a melting pot, this hardly allows for other forms of family or community. That is the stamp, you know, and we don't even see it. The white Protestant men of January 6th, 2021, symbolize a hard resistance to any other way other than that image. How How much of this fantasized picture and it was fantasized how much of this fantasized picture remains with it and and what of it in the context of your book well you know what's interesting is that um white nationalism white christian nationalism kind of you could think of it as the icing and a lot of what i'm talking about in my book is the cake okay you know, sometimes I think that if some of these folks who are on, um, who folks who are, let me rephrase that. There are many Christians I know who are devout Christians who are social justice oriented, um, who don't agree, who would not be backing what happened on January 6th, and then indeed are incredibly bothered that their religion is being used as a tool of oppression, right? That it is being weaponized against fellow Americans. And the thing is, is that um, they can see what I point out in the book, and they're open to learning. Like, I've done book groups, um, Bert, with, you know, different church groups uh, who've read my book as a kind of the, you know, book of the month club kind of thing. And they're very open to learning. And they're like, yeah, we didn't see it because it's just so out there and we're part of it. And so it's hard to see it. It's kind of like a fish in water, hmm. right? Yeah. What 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 January 6th has really highlighted is the number of people who just actually want this state, this country declared a Christian nation, you know, and, and we did have somebody in power who was very much, you know, going to try to make that happen, not because he believed in it, (laughs) but because he knows that it's how he could hold on to power. There are so many folks who identify as Christian that are, um, who are against the way that their religion is being weaponized. And I think it is important to help empower them. You know, folks say to me, yeah, I believe in this. I don't, I believe everybody should be treated equally, but gosh, I didn't know this about the history. And so now I understand and can fight this better. Yeah. And it's interesting. You say privilege is different from bias or discrimination. And I think that's a very important point. It's is, as you say, like the, like a fish in water is just, it's just there. Yeah, no. So you can think of like racism, homophobia, or religious oppression as a coin. And one side of the coin is the bias and prejudice, and the other side of the coin is the privilege. It, it, it's, it's both are there. There's some people that, that say, well, you know, if you're, if you're against white Christian nationalism, you're anti-religion. You're against religion. You're against Christianity and being oppressed. That there's oppression against Christians. I don't really believe that. And you say Christianity helped build the country we live in today. And I don't have a problem with that. That's your quote. Yeah. Where, where, where does a line then get crossed? And well, they, so go ahead. yeah, no. So you know, everybody can experience bias, right? That's the thing, and it's just that some of us. are part of the dominant group. So our bias is reinforced by laws and public policy, 
right? But an Indian person can be biased against a black person and a Chinese person can be biased against right. a white person. But then we have to go to that institutional or systemic level and who gets to have their bias reinforced, all right? So listen, there's no question, especially I would say in liberal progressive circles, that there is often a bias against religion. You know, I'm a college professor and, you know, I think that, if college professor was to say, hey, yeah, on Sunday morning, I'm going to church, or if I say, hey, I'm going to the temple, or hey, I'm canceling class to observe Diwali, there's a little bit of shock and surprise because, oh, you know, and then I can see the bias against religion come out. So that's the first thing I'll say. So it's not to say that Christians haven't experienced that kind of personal individual discrimination, but they have to understand that you know, society has been built for them, you know, and, and, and I don't blame them that they can't see it because Bert, we haven't been taught this, but then there's the question of, are you open to learning? Uh And some people aren't, some people are, and some people aren't right. They are just like, no, we're being persecuted because somebody wants to take down this 10 commandments monument. Okay. Well, first of all, should it have been put up in the first place, number one? Right. Or maybe we don't take it down. Can we add scriptures yes. from other sacred texts? Yes. Do you see what I'm saying? There are ways Absolutely. There are ways uh, to make this work. And look, nobody said working for equity and justice is simple. And nobody said it's easy. It is messy. But, you know, is the openness there? And for some it is, and for some it is not. For sure, and again, there is a lot to that. And I'm actually reminded, a, a African American friend of mine, when I was like talking to him about the how much racism I see, I, I don't understand it. You know, how can people not see it? And he said, and this shocked the heck out of me. Most racists don't know they're racist. Mm. I really had to think about that. I think that's again like the the fish in water. It's just part of who we are and it's just you don't think oh i'm a racist no because it's so pervasive and, and that it's become invisible it still shocks me that people can act you know be racist and not know that they're racist it's, yeah i mean some people do and some people you know like being racist but i think i don't know a lot of people uh, don't and you know it this is nothing really new it, it the Crusades, right. for example, were all about white Christian dominance and control over other cultures, inferior cultures. And we've talked about that right. a little bit. You say to understand the interaction of race and religion and specifically to follow the ties connecting whiteness and Christianity. You say we must go back to the 15th century. What was going on that conflated whiteness and Christianity, the two constructs? So there's a few things we have to consider. First is um, 1492, which most of us, if you went to school in the United States, you learned that was the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But there was something else uh, major that happened, and that was the expulsion of the Jews and Muslims from Spain, from the Iberian Peninsula, from present-day Spain and Portugal. And this happened because in the 1300s and 1400s, um, the way that Jews um, and some of the Muslims were treated, um, that they wanted to be part of society and they couldn't. So then there was a sense like, well, if you convert, and they were the Jews were called conversos and the Muslims were called Moriscos, yeah, that yeah. if you convert, then you will be expect, uh, accepted into society. 
But then people yeah. said, no, 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 you know, being Jewish, it, no, you're, that's in the blood. Yes. And that's when we get the kind of biological piece of this, okay? Because it was like the sentiment was, no, 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 it's in the blood. It doesn't matter if they say they converted to Christianity, mm-hmm. they're still Jewish. Mm-hmm. So we have to get rid of them. So mm-hmm. that's the expulsion of the Jews and the Moors, the Moriscos um, from from uh, Iberian Peninsula. Now, at the same time, you had colonization into Africa and Asia, as we were talking about earlier. And the C for colonization also stands for Christianity, right? The two go hand in hand. Um, And then we also have uh, the enslavement and the rise of the global slave trade. So in all of this, we eventually see when we get into, let's say, the late 1600s in the U.S., we start seeing, for example, the words Christian, free, um, you know, getting used, slave, getting used interchangeably, okay, getting used interchangeably. And then eventually, you know, you see that we actually end up focused more on race, as we talk about it today, than religion, right? One of the very first laws Congress passed was the Naturalization Act of 1790 that said you had to be a free white man to be a citizen of this country. Wow. Only only free white men who own property could vote. Right. That's right. That's right. Right. And so, you know, and of course, this is on top of saying that, you know, African Americans, well, black folks at the time would will count as three fifths of a human being, right? Right in our founding documents, and that the only Indians who count are those who are taxed, are those who can Ooh, pay. They were the only ones who were going to be counted. And I remember vaguely from my early childhood the notion of good Indians and bad Indians. Right. Whoa. Huh. That's, right. That's pretty ugly, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> and that often came down to the groups who accepted Christianity right. and those who didn't. Right. You know, but, but, but right here, we can see the distinction for your listeners between bias and privilege. So bias is what we, you know, the three-fifths, um, the way that uh, black Americans were counted as three-fifths of a human being. Right. The privilege for white people is the 1790 Naturalization Act that said only free white men could be citizens of this country because citizenship that meant later meant, you know, you could buy land because then eventually state, uh, Western states, for example, to uh, limit Asian Ameri- Asians moving in oh, yeah. said you had to be a citizen to own land. Yeah. Hmm. So that affects accumulation of wealth that affects, you know, next generation it affects a lot of things. And yeah. fast forward to 2021, there's an election for governor of Virginia, now in full throttle. And perhaps the biggest issue is public education. And the Republican candidate, Glenn Youngkin, has held Parents Matter rallies. And and his supporters, his far right, uh, which he seems sort of ambivalent about, but they insist education must be about instilling moral values mm-hmm. above everything else. They Not critical thinking, that education, public education, should be about instilling moral values. How does this mindset reflect what your book is about? Well, that's what public education was about 120 years ago, you know, was, and, and, and 
it was it's about you know public education whether we're talking in the US um, or when it was started in other countries it's about creating a certain kind of citizen what right and so when they're saying that they want morality taught right it's uh, some would say code word I would say not so code word for for bringing in Christianity full throttle right it's critical thinking they don't like it because when we say critical thinking we're saying hey look at what happened when the immigration act of 1924 was passed look what happened to society they don't want that right they don't want to they don't want to talk about what happened maybe they'll be okay with teaching some of these things but they don't want to teach about what's the impact of that because that doesn't serve their purpose and that's what critical thinking is doing so um it's you know again i go back to teach truth we've got that's what we're doing don't talk to me that this is a political agenda it is not it is about the truth and you know we have so many lovely teachers out there today that for for a while now have been trying to teach truth this is not a new phenomenon it's um there's this manufactured crisis that you know we're we're pushing a certain agenda in school no 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 we're trying to teach truth yeah and people get in trouble for that as you know in the in the yeah. you know colleges and universities there's all this hubbub and brouhaha about these liberal professors and yeah. it's a form of uh clamping down on on freedom on real public and, and education in general and it's creating a a, a an atmosphere of fear for being able to teach that stuff. I mean, to me, you know, I always thought, well, if, you know, capitalism is that good, go right ahead, teach Marxism. What the heck? It, exactly. <laughs> you know, it can't hurt, but if you only teach one thing, uh, you know, people just, you're not going to accept that and just not have any uh, critical thought. Go ahead. Yeah. No, it's it's where we are. I mean, uh, along with writing this book, I also do, um, and I'm in the School of Education, mm -hmm. um, I do workshops and I work with schools and school districts. And I will tell you, um, and you've probably seen some of the board meetings that have ended up on the national news mm -hmm, yes. with the way that people are behaving between masks and, you know, this manufactured crisis of critical race theory being taught in school, you know, Critical race theory, if your child is learning it, let me be clear, they are in law school yes. or they are in advanced undergraduate courses. As somebody who teaches teachers for 20 years, I've never taught critical race theory. However, I am teaching racial literacy. The one time I have or when I do teach critical race theory, it's because I'm teaching my race, religion and law class in our criminal justice legal studies program. Right. So that's got to be made clear. Critical race theory is a methodology. It is a way to approach the law. It is not an ideology, which is what parents are complaining about. And I did a parent event, Bert, two weeks ago in a, uh -oh. with a school district here in New Jersey. And I did something. I delivered a presentation um, in a very unique way that night, which I hope I never do again. And that was with an armed guard next to me. Oh, my God. Because that's where we're at. Nobody could approach me. And, and they did. My body man got right in front of me. When I was brought in through the backstage, I was taken out from the backstage. And sheriff's officers were on duty and on site. What have we become? That's... and. Wow. It was all, it, that part was awful. You know, it, it, everything went fine. You know, 
the planning and the security paid off because there was no incident. But I got to tell you, I could have never imagined that that's what I would have to do. I would have never, never imagined we would be where we are. But there was, I mean, there's, there's some signs of, dare I say, hope. In 2017, there was major pushback when Trump instated the Muslim ban. What does that say about the continuing tension between white nationalism and the rest of us? And I, I thought that was, uh, I felt quite proud then at the pushback. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I'm i right there with you. It was, there was so many moments of pride, people showing up yes. at the airports, people yes. doing this, so many different things. And the way the attorneys general came together from various states mm. to fight this together. And so it was being fought, you know, both in the court of law and the court of public opinion, which was lovely. Yes. Um, the thing is, is that for those of us who believe in equity and justice, um, we've got to kind of have a consistent loud voice. It can't just be when those egregious, egregious things happen. And, you know, to the folks who are listening, you know, for example, if you're in a district where some of these fights are happening, if you're happy that your student, your child and the school district is trying to teach the right thing and teach truth, you need to show up to those board meetings and let them know because the naysayers are the only ones being heard because they show up. The people who believe it are like, oh, well, I support the district, so I don't need to show up. No, no, we still need you to show up, right? So that's one real specific thing is that we're going to have to be kind of consistently at this, not just when um, horrible, egregious things occur like the Muslim ban. Yes, we must... Uh, somebody said uh, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, and I think we have to be vigilant and take that yeah. into account. And I, I have to say, one of the more interesting characters in American history was Huey P. Long. Back in the Depression of the 30s, definitely mixed reputation, some good, some horrible. In the Depression of the 30s, he railed against people having to wait for crumbs from the table to which we were not invited. Hmm. His suggestion was to build a bigger table. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you suggest a social justice approach. What is that? So the social justice approach, first of all, says that, hey, you know what? We see all this religious diversity, but that doesn't mean we have re religious equality, right? And um, and that we are going to need to change a few things. So in the last chapter of my book, I kind of give this uh, a five-pronged roadmap of things that need to change. Change the language, change the focus, change the questions, change some of our foundational assumptions and mm. change the paradigm. So for example, what I mean by change um, the paradigm is so often when it comes to interfaith work or, you know, folks who are believing and working towards religious pluralism, the focus is often, Bert, how are we all the same? Let's talk about how we're the same. Well, guess what? We got to change that. We're going to need to talk about how we're different and that that difference is okay. But I, as a Hindu, pray differently mm. in a different way, in a different space than someone who is Christian or someone who is Jewish. I sit on the floor and pray. Sometimes you would find my parents prostrating themselves in front of the deities, and that's how they pray. And sometimes what happens is that difference gets to be seen as weird yeah. or maybe yes. a little fanatical because, you know, the proper way of praying right. is sitting in a pew. Right. 
<laughs> with hands folded. Oh my! You know, right? So, so, so that's the thing. So we're going to have to talk about the fact that we are different, and that's one example. And uh, one of the things I was taught growing up was that America is a melting pot. We're supposed to be proud of that. Well, a melting pot melts it into one particular mold and one particular, you know, color and shade and way of doing things. I, you know, and it sort of, it, it's, it still allows for, for one culture to dominate. I'd like to think we Correct. are a very colorful mosaic and we can celebrate that. And I do think that is happening now. People are starting uh, to see that. that yeah, we can also use the metaphor of a salad. A right, it works. Yes, yeah. Everybody gets to be their own vegetable. It's we don't turn it into gazpacho. Okay, the <laughs> cucumber stays the cucumber, and the tomato stays the tomato. Right? Or I've also heard the analogy of an orchestra, so that everybody is playing their own instrument, and mm. that can be beautiful. But then when they all come together, that creates all an entirely different kind of music. That's great. I love that. That's a really good picture. The book is called White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. And we've had the pleasure of talking to the author, Professor Kyati Joshi. Thank you so much for being with us and a little bit of hope, you know, and we can understand. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Bert. Christian song.